So we're middle of chapter 18, which, like we mentioned last time, is really a bomb chapter. It gives us a whole new realization of what it means to be Jewish. Because the first 17 chapters of Tanya, the Alter Rebbe was explaining to us that we have the power to access our heart through our mind. But there's different levels within people. Not all of us have the same intellectual capacity. And even some people with great intellectual capacity have very limited emotional capacity. Mm. <coughs> now, I have to say though, and this is a little bit off the topic, but it's, it's important to know that a lot of times people think of very smart or brainy people as being emotionally numb. And scientifically, it's not true. People who have a very high Q tend to be and feel things much more deeply than people who don't. They just may have a harder time expressing it. So it's not nice to look at somebody who's very, very smart and think, oh, they are emotionally like disconnected. It's not true. Maybe they have a harder time expressing themselves. Maybe their feelings are so, so deep that it's harder for them to express those feelings. Hi, Ida, welcome. So it's not, it's not fair to make that assumption that just because somebody is very intellectual that they don't have, hi, Regina, you were hiding, <laughs> that they have a, a limited emotional capacity. But nevertheless, there are many people who understand things, but then they don't feel or relate to the things that they understand. When you really understand something very well, naturally, it should change your inner makeup, the way you relate to things. And one of my favorite uh, childhood examples of this is hanging out at my friend's house where her mother had a book all about like health. And at the front of the book, there looked to be this most delicious ice cream with a cherry on top. Looks so good, right? Then you open the front page of the book and it says, what you think to be the ice cream with the cherry on top is in fact a blocked artery with the blood stopping, trying to pop through, but it can't. And all of a sudden, the same picture that looked so tantalizing with a little bit of knowledge changed, and you no longer regard the picture as delicious. You think of it as disgusting. You, I'm sorry, you wanted to ask something? No. Actually, you answered it. So just understanding something well should change our emotions. But it doesn't work for everybody. Some people can never conjure up a full-fledged emotion. The best that they can ever do is resonate deeply with them so that they have a strong conviction in their heart. So that was the first level of love, and that love came from Bina. Bina is our soul power of comprehension, where we understand something so well, and then it can transfer to our heart. But the Alter Rebbe now tells, and that love is dependent on the category of the person. A tzaddik is going to have a, a righteous person, somebody who is able to transform his animal soul, is going to be able to create a level of love for Hashem, something that we can call 100% true. It is his absolute identity. And then there's the, the rest of us, the most of us, who are not going to be able to tra transform our animal soul. And so while we can create love for Hashem, we can't call our love the same kind of truth as the tzaddik's love, who now that has become his identity. So there are levels in that type of love. But now the love that we're talking about here 
doesn't matter what level the person is. They can be the greatest saint. They could be the greatest sinner. And they have the same type of love for Hashem, each of these. And it is called their truth of truths. It is absolutely true. It's from the depths of their heart. It doesn't matter how smart they are or how emotionally capable they are. This is something that is true to every single Jewish person. But they don't know about it. So that's the thing. So the thing is, one second. Okay, so we're saying that every single Jewish person has this amazing love for Hashem. Oh, really? So why are there so many sinners? Doesn't make any sense. If we all love Hashem so absolutely, the same as a, the same as a tzaddik, there's no difference, then why is it that there's people who are not connecting with this kind of love? In fact, that's the classic example in the Talmud about the thief who is about to steal. And before he steals, he prays, God, please make me successful. Are you kidding? God said, don't steal. Do you believe or you don't believe? If you believe, then why are you stealing? And if you don't believe, why are you praying? Mushka, I have your copy for you. So we're not connecting. We're not connecting with this level of love. So it's not just about having this love, which does come to the fore as we're going to discuss later on in this chapter at certain moments, like a bomb. But we want to use this energy and tap into it so that it informs our everyday decisions. It's like cognitive dissonance. You know you know one thing and then you're acting something different. So the Alter Rebbe says in order for us to tap into this love, we need to understand four things about this love. We need to understand four things of this love. We needed to understand its root. Where in the soul is this level of love rooted? So then we needed to know, good morning, welcome. Okay, girls, we're learning. You have to sit down and focus. <laughs> Rachela has decided to keep the last 15 minutes for questions. That's right, so last 15 minutes for questions, and up until then, we're staying focused on the chapter. Thank you, Rachel. We're not interrupting yeah. and we're not making noise. Where is my friend there? I have to tell her something. Call in here. Okay. okay. So, so, we, so we needed to understand the root of the love. We needed to understand what does this love seek to attain. Remember we said every love seeks to attain something. If somebody, the example we gave last week is if somebody loves music, it's not just the music that they love. There's something in the music that their soul seeks. There's a certain elevation that they get, a certain like uh, freeing of the soul, a pleasure that they get just from listening to the music, and that's what they seek. That's the, that's the property of, of the love for music. And even in love for God, there's a certain something that we seek in love for God. We want to seek a pleasure, divine pleasure. So we under, have to understand, because this love is unique. It's not like any other love in the world. And it's something different that it seeks to attain. So we discussed the root, which soul power is rooted in. We know it's not Bina. We understand what's its defining property, what does it seek to attain? It's something different than every other love. How is it an inheritance to us? Because love is not inherited. Like we said last class, you inherit a disposition. You don't inherit a relationship. So how is it inherited? And finally, we needed to understand how is fear included in this kind of love? Because in order to properly keep the mitzvahs, you don't just need love, you also need fear. And 
We don't like the word fear a lot. We think it doesn't belong in a relationship. But actually, there's an old saying of Hasidim. Hi, welcome! There's an old saying of Hasidim. They said, love is more pleasurable, but fear is much healthier. And even between people, we don't like to think that we have fear in our relationship between ourselves. But let's change that word from fear to respect. There needs to be a healthy dose of respect in a relationship for a relationship to thrive. If somebody's all about love, then they're like, yeah, okay, it's all good, it's all good. They're not going to be careful not to do something that will hurt or offend the other person. There has to be a certain element of respect, which is fear. Hi, Yael! <laughs> there has to be a certain element of fear in the relationship in order to make it totally functional. No, so, no, me, hi! You didn't greet us like that. I, I know I couldn't because you guys were making too much noise. I said we were talking. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Hi, Debbie, welcome. I'm sorry, what? Yael. Hi. How are you? How are you? You look so different today, I recognize you. How are you? How is the love oh, you, you missed its defining property. That was number two. What is its defining property? How is it inherited? And how is fear also included in it? Because the beginning of this chapter, the Alter Rebbe, that's the author of the Tanya, the Alter Rebbe said that you have to know this with absolute certainty, that no matter what caliber you are, even if you have very limited capacity, it is definitely very much, not just close to you to keep all the mitzvahs of the Torah with a true relationship with Hashem, with love and fear. It is very close to you. So if that's the case, that it's very close to you, it's not just love, it also has to be fear. If you want to keep all the mitzvahs properly, it's love that, that gets us to do the mitzvahs, it's fear that keeps us from transgressing. So we need both love and fear. And so how is fear also included in this? So I we're answering this question out of order. In a relationship is fear of hurting somebody. Right. Right. So the, the way we do class nowadays is because we are, I have such people here that are much wiser than me, including you. No. So the last 15 minutes of class, everybody who has something to share, that's, that's the time, and I'll, I'll be quiet and I'll let everybody else share their insights. And, and yeah, and, and you have a very good point, and um, we're going to get to that, and I hope that you'll share about that as soon as we're done with what we are doing over here. So, um, remind me where we were up to, and, we, okay, we're talking about how you needed fear too, and now... We, we are going out of order because although we asked four questions, one, two, three, four, we're starting to answer from item C, the third thing, and that is, how does it come to us as an inheritance? And we started to say that we inherited this from our forefathers. And how did we inherit, we're on the third page, how did we inherit this from our forefathers? Because our forefathers underwent a complete transformation they totally transformed themselves to the extent that they became a Merkava. A Merkava means a chariot. Hi, hi. A Merkava means a chariot. Our forefathers transformed themselves. They went through a metamorphosis so much so that they had no will of their own anymore. They now just became simply a conduit for the will of Hashem. 
And because they underwent this complete chance transformation, the Zohar teaches us, it's arusa de la sata, it's arusa de la ela. That means, through an arousal from below, we elicit a response from above. But the way that we elicit a response from above is in much grander scale than what we do down here. Later on in Tanya, in Igeris HaTshuva, chapter 12, the Aldorba speaks about how a, a, the sun moves thousands of miles in the sky and creates a corresponding shadow down here of just a few inches. And it works the opposite way too. Something of just seemingly small. We think we did something small. We, we overcame our anger. We wanted to scream at somebody, but we didn't. We wanted to ju- judge somebody disfavorably, but we didn't. We were tempted, you know, not to, the person was tempted not to keep Shabbos properly and, and they withheld themselves. That little act for Hashem creates unbelievable repercussions above. We don't imagine the impact of our small action down here. The little few inches here is corresponding to thousands of miles above. And so our forefathers elicited that kind of response through their efforts down here of transforming themselves to totally be in tune with the divine will and be not about them. Not about them. It was just about Hashem. Because of that, they as if became a new breed. These people were the Merkava. They were the chariot for Hashem. We like, like we said, the Avos, there are three. There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the fourth leg of the chariot is David, King David. These four human beings underwent such a great transformation that it affected them, that their children are different. It's like a new breed. Like, you know, each breed gives birth to its own. Now they give birth to a new breed of persons, and that is the Jewish people. And again, it's hard for us Jewish people to hear that. We don't want to hear that. We say, no, we're not different. We're the same as everybody else. That's not true, and it doesn't help anybody when we try to deny our uniqueness and our difference and our, and our singularity. Torah teaches us that every single Jewish person has a mission of goodness. It's not just Jewish people. Every single person on this earth has a mission of goodness. Every human being is special and has something to play out. However, there is a, a Jewish mission, and that's not just about goodness. That's about holiness. And the Tanya is here to teach us what it means to be holy and how to be holy. And it is specifically through this soul that we inherit from our forefathers that gives us this holiness. Our soul is literally a part of Hashem. And that's what makes us holy. It's not that Jewish people, it's not just that we have a unique, anybody, any person on this earth is able to recognize the creator simply through logic. The Jewish people are able to arrive at a unique awareness of Hashem, but furthermore, we actually have a part of Hashem within us. I read an interesting story of the Maharal. I don't know if anybody ever heard of the Maharal of Prague. He was famous for the creation of the golem. The, the author of the Tani is actually a seventh generation descendant from him. So I read a story of, and again, it's Jew- Jewishness is not exclusive. If somebody wants to be Jewish, they could be Jewish. We don't proselytize because we believe that every person was created in, in the image of God and everybody has a mission to fulfill and they don't have to be Jewish to fulfill the mission. But if they want to be Jewish, they could be Jewish. So here is a story of a man who wanted to be Jewish and he came to the Maharal. He was a very smart man. He did a lot of learning. Hi, Whitney, welcome. And he... Um, 
he gave him instructions. He said, you're going to have to study the laws very well. Then you're going to undergo the Brit Milah, the circumcision. And after that, you're going to have to immerse in a mikvah. So he said, I understand that I'm going to have to study very well. That's the only way to know how to keep the laws. I understand that I'm going to have to undergo circumcision. That's part of being Jewish. But why go into the mikvah? And he said, listen, a few weeks after you go into the mikvah, we're going to make a party in order to mark your entering into the Jewish people. And at the party, please remind me of your question. Okay. So that's what happens. He learns. He undergoes circumcision. He goes to the mikvah. A few weeks later, they make a party. And the question is not forthcoming. So the maharal calls the man over and said, you had a question to ask me? And he said, yeah, I don't have that question anymore. Now, I, I was with my mother yesterday, and I, I asked her, what does she think about this story? Because the story has to be interpreted. And... Um, the way we interpreted the story was that after having gone to the mikvah, he experienced a new experience. He felt different, and he understood that something different happened to him through going to the mikvah. He got a divine soul. Getting a divine soul is a complete transformation, and that's what happened to him. I have a friend, um, I used to study with her regularly many years ago, and it turned out, you know, through the course of our studies, we come to realize that she wasn't Jewish, because her father was Jewish, but her mother wasn't Jewish, and she wasn't willing to undergo the conversion process. And she said to me, Rachel, listen, I keep Shabbat. I keep kosher. I have a mezuzah on my door. I'm much more Jewish than any of those people who don't do that. I don't need to undergo conversion. And I had to be honest with her, and I said, I'm sorry, that doesn't make you Jewish. Because being Jewish is not what you do. It's essentially who you are. There's something different about the Jewish people. It's that we possess a divine soul. And if we want to get this divine soul, if, if you want to be Jewish, Hashem tells us how to do it. We cannot grab that piece of infinity for ourselves. It's Hashem who has to give it to us. So there is something that the Jewish person has, and that comes to us as an inheritance from our forefathers because they underwent this complete transformation. So let's get back to the text now. I'm going to go a few lines back just to complete the thought. It's the beginning of the third page. The explanation is as follows. The patriarchs were truly the chariot of Hashem, meaning they were completely subservient to him and had no other will but the divine will. Just as a chariot has no will of its own but is directed solely by the will of its rider. And therefore, Therefore, they merited the privilege of drying down for all subsequent generations of their descendants forever. A nefesh, ruach, and neshama from the ten holy sefirot of the four worlds of Atzilus, Berea, Yetzira, and Asiya. In which of the four worlds and from which Sephira within these worlds does the soul originate? Each individual according to his level and according to his deeds. Okay. So, the way Hashem created the world, He created the world in an evolution of worlds. There are four worlds. The highest of these four worlds is the world of Atzilut. Atzilus, like we just say in regular yeshiva terms. And Atzilus comes from two words. One is 
ha'atzala, like to save and to put aside. Like for example, when Esau, Esau was very upset that his father blessed Jacob instead, and he complained to his father and he said to him, "Halay atzalta li bracha, did you not save a bracha for me? The word etzel means to save or put aside. It also means near. Etzel just means near. The world of Atzilus is closest to Hashem. It's in this first world of Atzilus where Hashem emanated from himself the ten sefirot. The ten sefirot are discussed in many places in Kabbalah and in Tikkun Zohar. And with these ten sefirot, he, he relates to and creates the world. So... Each of these ten souls, each of these souls, a Jewish soul, comes from, is rooted in one of the holy sefirot. It's not just created from the sefirah. Like, for example, everything in this world is created from the sefirot. So water, for example, is an evolution of chesed. But when we say a soul comes from chesed, it means it is the actual sefirah. It is hewn from the divine sefirah itself because the soul is part of divinity. So the level of the soul depends on which sephira it is rooted in. Now, according to which sephira our soul is rooted in, that's going to give us our character. We're going to be rooted and have tendencies towards certain things. Like it is well known in the Talmud, there were the two schools of Hillel and Shammai. The school of Hillel tended towards leniency. The school of Shammai tended towards strictness. And that's because the school of Hillel was their souls were rooted in the sephira of chesed, kindness. While the school of Shammai, their souls were rooted in the sephira of severity, judgment. So that gives us our character, which, soul, which sephira is our soul rooted in. And then there's another thing we have to take into consideration, and that is which level of worlds does our soul come from? Some souls are rooted in the highest world of Atzilut. Some so- souls in the world below that, Berea. Now, the way it works is that these tents, if he wrote, they start out in the world of Atsilas, right? But then they, they, there's like a link. And these tents, if he wrote, are then contracted and suited to the world below it. So in order for the, the world of Berea to get its life force, the tents, if he wrote, of Atsilas are contracted and suited to fit the vessels of the world of Berea. And in the world of Berea, now the, the creatures of that world and the souls of that world get their life force from the energy as it is, has been contracted to suit that specific world. You can only take in what's according to your vessels. Like, for example, the eye is a vessel for sight, right? But if God forbid, or the ear is a vessel for hearing, but if God forbid somebody sees a light that's way too bright or hears a sound that is way too great, their vessels can't hold it. It can actually rip the vessel. They can damage their eyesight. They can damage their hearing. You have to get the energy according to your own vessel. So in each world, the life force is contracted and diminished in order to suit the vessels of the creatures of that world. So then after Berea, it's furthermore contracted to the world of Yetzira, and then again contracted and into the world of Asiya. So each person, thank you so much, each person... Um, gets their, their soul from a certain sephira and it is rooted in a specific world. Each person according to the way he was born, we don't get to choose which soul we have. There's a divine plan. We each have a mission and according to our mission, that's the soul we get. The soul we get is the perfect soul we need in order to fulfill our mission.
But furthermore, we actually could upgrade our, our level of soul or our awareness through our own actions. So each person gets the soul suited to their level and the way that they act. Now, at any rate, even the unworthiest and most sinful Jews draw down by their marital union a nefesh from the level of nefesh of malchus of Asiya. That means to say that the union of every Jewish couple, no matter how low their spiritual level, brings forth a soul from, at the very least, the lowest level of holiness. This lowest level is nefesh of malchus of Asiya, because Asiya is the lowest of the four worlds, malchus is the lowest of fira within that world, and malchus itself is further composed of three levels, nefesh, ruach, and neshama. Nefesh is the lowest of them. In addition, we have seen in the previous chapters that the soul itself consists of three levels of nefesh, ruach, and neshama. Thus, one who has been given only a nefesh, which stems from nefesh of Malchus of Asiya, has the lowest order of soul, deriving from the lowest level into the spiritual hierarchy, as the Alter Rebbe now goes on to say. So, right now we're talking about how a soul is drawn down. And we're saying that even the sinners of the Jewish people draw down a holy soul for their children, even if it's the lowest level of soul. So let's stop for a minute and let's talk about this idea of the type of soul that parents draw down for their children. Because parents are very much key in the spiritual health of their children, just like they're key in the physical health of their children. We know that the physical health of the parent affects the physical health of the baby. The spiritual health of the parent affects the spiritual health of the baby. Now, um, in Judaism, very different than I think any other thought, is that, is that the act of intimacy is considered the most holy act. Hi, welcome! It's considered the most holy act. And when a husband and wife are meritorious, during this act, the Shekhinah is with them. Well. And in fact, in the home, our home is considered a Mikdash Ma'at, a small sanctuary, and in our home, what corresponds to the Holy of, Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the entire Beit HaMikdash, and that is the bedroom. The bedroom is considered the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the holiest space in our home. And when we're meritorious, we, are, we bring, draw down the Shekhinah. Now, um, so therefore, there's two things that are involved. First of all, the spiritual state of the parents. Are these good people or are these people who have a lot to work on? That's first of all, spiritually. And second of all, halakhically, is the wife permissible to her husband now? Did she go to the mikvah? These are things that affect the soul. Actually, what affects the soul, the, the parents' union affects mostly the garments of the soul. So the talents and abilities of the child is not really up to the parents. Meital! <laughs> It's not really up to the parents, but the manner in which the child is able to express themselves does come from the parents. Now, that does not give... There's a great book, by the way, that I recommend everybody read, and this is called The Joy of Intimacy by Rabbi Manus Friedman. And he speaks about the act of intimacy in Jewish thought, and it is incredible. Everybody really should read this book. And one of the things that he points out is that we can't go blame our parents. If somebody is an angry person, they can't say, well, my parents were angry. 
No, I mean, it could be that, God forbid, somebody gets a terrible disease even though they never smoke or drink and ate completely healthy. It's possible that it's not connected. Nevertheless, when parents act holy, they have a much better chance of pulling down a higher level order of soul for their child. But he also says that if the parents are angry or in a state of mood, then then the kid automatically has... Not automatically. A much higher chance of developing those traits. Because the, the way to be holy in that act is, first of all, that parents have to be completely focused on each other. The act of intimacy is an act of putting your own self aside and being there for the other. And so therefore, in Jewish law, intimacy is not supposed to take place when either of them are drunk. That means that they're not mentally present. If either of them are angry, if they are distracted, if one of them is thinking of divorce, that's not the time to be intimate. Intimacy has to be where the, the parents are totally focused on each other and in the goodness of each other and making space for each other and putting yourself aside, that's what brings the Shekhinah down. So doesn't automatically cause one way or the other. It gives the chances better this way or the other. But for the most part, sinning parents will draw down a low soul for their child. But the altar is saying over here that even the most sinful parents will draw down, maybe it's the lowest level of soul, but a holy soul for their children. Now this is very significant. And that is because, as the altar will go on to explain, even in the the lowest level of soul is going to be invested boundless universes of holiness. Because the principle of holiness is interclusion. Holiness, the mark of holiness is self-abnegation. And when you put yourself aside, there's room for, there's room for others. So for example, each of the holy Sifi wrote is not, Chachma is not just Chachma. Within Chachma, there's going to be all the other ten Sifi wrote. So there's going to be Chachma of Chachma, there will also be Chesed of Chachma, there will be Malchus of Chachma. Within each level of holiness is going to be included all the other levels of holiness. So within all the Sifirot are included each of the other Sifirot, and within each of the worlds is going to be included the higher worlds as well. So the tiniest bit of holiness actually includes within itself the, in, the infinite light of Hashem. And that's why we're going to, the altar is going to explain something that was written in, in the writings of the Arizal um, because, because of this principle. In contrast, Kalipa, evil, unholiness, is characterized by self-centeredness. For example, Yechaz Hanavi quotes Paro saying, Li yairi va'ani asisini. My river is mine and I have created myself. When it comes to unholiness, then it's all about self-centeredness. And does unholiness do kindness for somebody else? Sure, if there's something to be gained for themselves. That's direct contrast to holiness, which the principle of holiness is interclusion. Okay, so these sinful parents, even them, draw down a soul, a holy soul for their child. Shehi madrega ha ha this is the lowest level of holiness in the world of Asiya. Yeah, since Malchus is one of the ten holy Sifi wrote, and since holiness is the realm of unity, where every level is comprised of all the other levels, perforce, he kula mikulan gam mechachma da Asiya. It, the lowest level in Asiya, is compounded of all the other levels in Asiya, including chachma of Asiya the highest 
Sephira and Asiya. Shebaseicha mulubeshes chachma de malchus ta'atzilas. Within chachma of Asiya is clothed chachma of malchus of Atzilas. Okay, so within this level, this lowest level of soul, right? It comes from the lowest level of the Sephirot, which is malchus. And it's in the world of Asiya, so in the lowest world. Yet, in the level of malchus is enclosed, uh, in the level of malchus of Asiya. So, so malchus is the lowest of the Sifirot, and Asiya is the lowest of the, of the worlds, is going to be enclosed Chachma of Asiya. So the Chachma of this lowest world. And yet, within Chachma of this lowest world, Chachma being the highest level, is going to be enclosed Chachma all the way up until the highest level of all, which is Chachma of Atzilas. So spirituality does not follow a neatly organized hierarchy, as Rabbi Steinsaltz puts it. That's why it, sound, it might sound like some rags to riches story where somebody who seemed to come from terrible parents is all of a sudden, you know, the great man of the generation. In fact, the lineage of King Mashiach is full of questionable unions. And that's something we're going to talk about soon. But, um, Spirituality, because it, the smallest drop of spirituality, the lowest level, will include the highest, there's nothing neat about it. There's nothing like uh, the specific order that it has to follow. Somebody who comes from the lowest level has within himself the ultimate, most highest level. So no matter how lowly the person has come from, no matter how his lineage is, nevertheless, they include within themselves this most highest level. Now what's amazing about this most highest level? Now we're going to read what the Alter Rebbe says about this, and this is unbelievable. Shebeseicha chachma da'atzilas sheba meir or ain't seif baruchu mamish. In chachma of malchus of atzilas, his clothed chachma of atzilas, since all the sefirot of atzilas incorporate each other, which in turn is illuminated by the actual light of the blessed ain't sof. So within our soul, in this level of chachma, is invested the actual divine light of Hashem. No matter how lowly the soul, the soul has a direct experience of Hashem. Now, the altar brings proofs that no matter what level soul, this, they experience this level of Chachma, and these are both from Tehillim. as it is written, Hashem bechachma yasar aretz. God in his wisdom founded the earth. The words God in his wisdom show that the Ein Sof illuminates in the Zephyr of Chachma. You can read it like this. Hashem bechachma, God is in chachma, and furthermore, Yasat Aretz, He founded the earth. Simply, you read the verse from Tehillim, from Psalms, and you say it means God in His wisdom founded the earth, and that is what it means. But you have to also look at it in a deeper level. Yes. Um, I have a question. So, the holiness where you put yourself aside, because I like to do that a lot. But then, what happens if somebody, if that's a really good question. Yeah. We're going to address that at 1045. <laughs> so, so the way to read the verse is, Hashem bechachma yasad aretz, that God in his wisdom, that means God is in wisdom. Hashem bechachma, and furthermore, by being in wisdom, yasad aretz, he founded the earth. The, the level aretz, earth, represents the sephira of malchus, the lowest level. So Hashem is in Chachma, and Chachma goes all the way down to Malchus. And then again, that's how we prove that, that Chachma is in Malchus. And now we're going to prove that Chachma 
So, one second, Malchus being the lowest of the Sifirot. So this first verse is proving that Chachma, the highest of all the Sifirot, is in Malchus, the lowest of the Sifirot. The next verse is going to show us that Chachma, the highest of all the Sifirot, is found even in this very, very lowest of all the world, which is called the world of Asiya. And we read the verse as follows, V'chulam b'chachma asisa. In wisdom, you have made them all. The word made indicating that chachma is clothed in asiya. Okay, so we'll read the verse again. Asisa means you have made. But it comes from the same word of asiya, which is the world of action. That's the world that we live in. So we're saying that, that chachma is included even in asiya. The word, okay, like we read this already. The word made indicating that chachma is clothed in asiya in action. So how does, what comes out now? V'nimta, ki ain't saif baruchu melubash b'vchinat chachma shebenefesh ha'adam. Yihia mi sheyihia mi Yisrael. Thus we see that the light of the blessed Ainsof is garbed in the faculty of wisdom in the human soul of whatever sort of Jew he may be. Further in this chapter, the Alter explains why it is the faculty of wisdom in the soul that receives the illumination of the Ainsof. Okay, because we have a question. I mean, we learned... We referenced the Zohar and we said that um, that means no thought can grasp you at all. So now we're saying that the light of Einsof is invested in the power of Chachma in the soul. We're saying that Hashem is grasped, is in the soul, not grasped, but He's in the soul. And how does that come to be? So we're going to have to understand what Chachma is and why it is that actually the light of the Einsof dwells within Chachma. Now, um, in talking about how different souls have different levels and that each of us have our mission, it's very key to be in tune with what your gifts are and not to be jealous of someone else's gifts, but instead turn inside and see what is it that I have that is unique about me to share with the world that Hashem put me here for. And there's the classic story of the Baal Shem Tov where um, they were, he told the, soul, the story of two souls who made a mistake. And basically, there was a, a wagon driver taking a merchant, as many of the stories go. And they end up in the town for Shabbos. And as they're on the way to Shul, um, they notice, they each go, they're separate now, they're not together. And uh, the rich man notices that there's a wagon stuck in the mud. He's already dressed for Shabbos, and he sees the poor wagon driver, somebody else's wagon driver, stuck in the mud. So he does whatever he can. He's not a strong guy. They work together. Finally, finally, just before Shabbos, they managed to pull the wagon out of the mud. And here he is, all dirty and everything like that. Now, our poor wagon driver is walking to Shul, and he notices a group of beggars. And he says, hey, guys, I'm eating at the inn over there. I don't have that much. But all you guys are welcome to come eat Shabbat dinner with me. Okay, so he doesn't have much. And whatever he has, he shares with uh, the many beggars that join him at the inn for Shabbat dinner. But they were all pretty much hungry because they didn't have that much to give. And the point of the story is, it does not exonerate the wagon driver from helping uh, a guy stuck in the mud. And it does not exonerate I mean, the, the merchant from helping the guy stuck in the mud. And it does not exonerate the wagon driver from being kind and charitable. But it's the merchant who should have invited all the guests for Shabbos. And it was the wagon driver who should have helped the wagon out of the mud. And these souls were making a mistake. Everybody has to do all of the mitzvahs. So even if a person is not wealthy, they still need to be giving tzedakah. 
and, and even if they're not uh, very strong, they still need to be helping somebody if they could. But the point is, you were given your certain unique gifts. Tap into those and make sure you're using them to the fullest to serve Hashem. Okay, so we're talking about the power of Chachma. And In turn, the soul's faculty of wisdom, together with the light of the blessed Ainsof that is garbed in it, suffuses all the levels of the soul in its entirety, from head to foot, as it were, meaning from the highest level, the highest level of the soul to the lowest, to animate them with godly vitality. So what Chachma here is, Chachma is not just a mental faculty. Chachma is actually the power of life. And although Chachma is invested in the power of, of Chachma, I mean the, the light of the Ein Sof is invested in the power of Chachma in the soul, it doesn't stop there. It's not limited to Chachma. It then, from the power of Chachma, suffuses the entire soul to give it life. In the similar way that our, our, our life force is in our soul. Once our soul is invested in the body, the life force is not limited to the soul. It reaches every single aspect of our body. And the same way, although the light of the Ein Sof is, although the light of the Ein Sof is within is within the power of Chachma, and our soul comes sit down. It's within the soul power of Chachma in our soul. It's not limited to the soul power of Chachma. The light of the Ein Sof actually illuminates our entire soul. So where it's the point of contact is our soul power of Chachma. But it is not limited to the soul power of Chachma. It suffuses our entire soul. And here the Altarev is going to bring a verse to show us that Chachma is not just intellectual faculty. It is actually a source of life. As it is written, wisdom gives life to those who possess it. The soul which possesses the faculty of wisdom receives its life by means of this faculty, as stated above. Now we understand this. We understand that this, no matter how small a soul is, it has within it the highest level of godliness. Now we can understand something that seems to baffle our mind. At times, the sinners of Israel may even bring down for their children very lofty souls, which had been in the depths of the klipot, as is explained in Sefer Gilgulim. You can say, okay, I'll read this, and then I'll, I'll ask a question about this. A soul that has fallen captive in the hands of the klipot remain in this state until the klipot release it of their own will. So let's say, God forbid, somebody abused their soul, and then they went to the next world, and their soul fell into the hands of impurity. So now it's captive to the hands of impurity. Anything in the hold of the klipot cannot be wrested from them against their will, because there is a principle that God does not make unjustifiable demands of his creations, and that holds true even with regard to these forces of unholiness, which are called klipot. In the case of a child to be born to sinful parents, these forces, the klipot, willingly release the soul in the hope that a child will be influenced by its parents and will become a sinner like them. In this way, the klipot stand to extract an even greater measure of vitality from the holiness of the soul by means of its eventual sins. You see, the klipot want the most energy that they can get. The higher level soul that, that there is, it's the more energy they can get. So when they have this soul, 
and it's a great soul, let's say, God forbid, a great person abused his powers, and he then be, he was in the, became captive to the klipa, they have this soul, right? They're, they're not willing to release it. When do they release it? When there's a profit to be gained. The, here they see the union of these sinful parents, and they're like, great, we're going to release the soul now. The sinful parents will get this soul. They're going to be terrible parents. They'll be a terrible example. This soul will then become a greater sinner and more power for us. So in this idea, then they will release this soul. However, having such a lofty soul, the child is able to overcome the obstacles imposed by its parents' wickedness and may rise to the level of a tzaddik. In this way, paradoxically, it comes to pass that a tzaddik may be born to wicked parents because of their wickedness. He ended up getting this very holy soul because it was only in this situation that the klipa was willing to release this soul. And he overcame this, his circumstances because none of us are a slave to our to circumstances. Hashem puts us in a situation only for Abram to overcome it. So he overcame his circumstances and he's a tzaddik. So he's a tzaddik and he is the children of Rishaim. How does that happen? How does that make sense? Okay, the klipa releases the soul, but how does that make sense? Children have to be something like the parents. They have to have something in common with the parents. But now we understand that he does have something in common with his parents, because even if the parents had the lowest order of soul, it doesn't matter. What, like we said, within the lowest level of soul is the highest level, chachma avatzilas. And within chachma avatzilas, the light of the blessed Ein Sof shines. Okay, so I'm gonna sum up what we said until now. And next class, we'll get to talk about the power of Chachma, which is incredible. So what we said until now is that every single Jewish person, no matter who they are, is able to have a deep relationship with Hashem of love and fear. And it is equal to every Jewish person, the most righteous and the most wicked. There's no difference. We can all have that same truth of relationship. And that is because within us, we have a divine soul, which is is actually hewn from the Holy Sifi wrote, and it is part of the divine himself. We actually have, we're not a part of the creation, we are part of the creator. And because Hashem is our life force, our soul naturally loves him. Now we're gonna have to learn how to tap into that power, and we're gonna get to that next class, and now we're open for questions. I'd like to make Yes. You know, you said how uh, um, bad parents, how you say yeah. wicked parents, yeah have a good child yeah. because there is three partners to a child. It's the parents he gives the they give the blood and the body. Yeah. And from Hashem you get the Neshama. That's right. So each child is a different Neshama. You can have twelve kids and each kid is different. Because it's not really from the parents. It's a, a Neshama from up above. Yeah. So he can act like a much better or different than the parents. Right. Thank you so much. Can you explain the vessel? You said something about you have to have the, the vessel. Yeah, the vessel has to be suited to the light. So within each world, the divine light is contracted to suit the vessel. Like you can't plug in uh, 110 voltage to, to 220. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's a mismatch of energy. It's going to cause the thing to explode. So the lower levels of world get their light through a, a further contraction. In the higher world, there's a higher, more spiritual uh, revelation of Hashem. As it goes to the world below it, I'll get to you in a second, as it goes to the world below it, it further contracts itself, and now it's more diminished, so it suits the creatures in that world, because they wouldn't be able to access, they wouldn't be able to handle, they would explode out of existence if they got the pure light as it was from a higher level world. Does that answer your question? A little bit. 
it's really, it's really, you know, we got it. A little bit? We want me to stay on it a little longer? It's a, it's a little, you know, it's heavy. Like you, oh, sorry, I'll, I'll give you another example. You can't, you can't, you know, start sitting down with a two-year-old child and explain to him rocket science. It's not suited to his vessels. It's like you're saying nothing to him. In order for him to get anything in his mind, you need to, you know, teach him, you know, I have one apple and I have another apple. Boom, boom, two apples. That's his first level of rocket science. It's suited to his vessels. So which world that we're in, the divine light is suited so that we can take energy from that. So depending on the low-level soul that we have, which soul it's rooted in, that's the, 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 the level of divine consciousness we get. But no matter how low our divine consciousness is, we have to remember that it's suited. It's not like what we say, the roots of the tree are the source of the tree, <coughs> right? So the roots of the tree are the source for the branches and the leaves and the fruits. Are we going to say that within the branches and the leaves and the fruits are the roots? No. The roots are simply the source, but they're not actually within the other parts of the tree. In contrast, Chachma of Atzilus is not just the roots for the lower levels below it, it is actually garbed within them. So even though it's been restricted and diminished and hiding a little more, nevertheless, it's still deeply within them. And in fact, uh, the fact that we're able to feel our divine soul is something that is, should be impossible, really. Our body is physical, it doesn't just not, it's not a proper vessel to feel the divine soul. It actually hides the divine soul. How in the world could we feel our divine soul? We have a sense of our nishama. We have our sense of holiness. And that's something that our, our forefathers affected for us. That's what it says. The words, the terminology that the Alter Rebbe uses here is zahu lahamshech. They merited to draw down. To draw down means they were able, they, they were able to transform themselves so much that their children are even able to sense the divine while being in a physical body. Okay, yes, and then I'm going to get to you, Jill. Okay. So you had a question because you said holiness means putting yourself aside. But what if you put aside yourself aside and then get hurt? Yeah. yeah, so it doesn't mean being indiscriminate. Does that mean you don't want to be holy to those people? No, it doesn't mean you're not being holy. You're being Holiness also means saying no. Holiness doesn't mean you're a doormat. Holiness means you recognize your inherent relationship with Hashem and you have a responsibility to Hashem to take care of yourself. It's not about you, it's about Hashem. Okay. But because you have a responsibility to Hashem to take care of yourself, you will not allow somebody else who is, uh, um, does not have good intentions to take advantage of you. Yeah. Okay. You're, being, you're, you're abusing yourself yeah, it and you're also abusing them. You're giving them a chance to do misdeeds. Yeah. You don't want to give them a chance to do misdeeds. So by putting boundaries for that's them, you're thought. actually being nice to them. Yeah, that's what I thought, yeah. Because that's what I was feeling, because if you put yourself aside, if you do that and get taken advantage of, then it actually hurts inside. And so it's not fully letting Hashem's light in. That's right. So then, you know, and then you don't want to be selfless anymore. So it's, it's kind of like, I, I thought that, but I just wanted to put it. Yeah, so it's, you're still being selfless. Yeah. It's just, it's from which paradigm are you looking at? It's about, this is me, and I'm asserting myself, or... I, uh, this is this is the good. yeah exactly you have to look at things in the bigger picture I noticed that you know Hashem gave you responsibility to be healthy and strong it's you have to be taking care of your own self it's like these are the words from Hillel who says if I am not for myself then who is for me Hashem gave you responsibility to take care of yourself but once the next thing he says but if I am only for myself then what am I it's the balance 
And then also, if somebody is born and they're different, like than their family, like you, what you're yeah. talking about, um, how exactly how does it happen that somebody's just like so different from their family? Because the parents, as much as they bequeath to their child. Uh, the garments of the soul, the way that they're going to be able to express themselves in the world, ultimately the soul comes directly from Hashem, like Nomi said. There are three partners in creation of a child, and the third partner is Hashem, and the level soul that they get is directly from Hashem. So they can be very different than their family. And Jill had a question. I had two. Okay, sure. Well, first of all, I thought it might be helpful to have it short. Okay. I'm such a visual kind of person to see the spherot and also uh-huh. the worlds. Okay. Just suggesting. Okay. I'm so, thinking we have that screen, right? Yeah. Maybe sometimes we could do slides. That would be great. Yeah. Good. Okay. Papa, um, the other thing is mikvah for vessels. Can you explain that? Why we put the. That was in this week's, par- that's in this week's Parsha. Okay. And that's mandated from the Torah that if, if it wasn't um, formed by a Jew, we need to purify the vessel. So it, it changes the chemistry of the vessel? I mean, what, what is it? So halachic, so in, uh, just on a simple level, it's the halacha. Hashem says, okay. if it so wasn't created, I'm not saying there's no reason for it. If mm-hmm. it wasn't formed by Jewish people, it, the, it has to be dipped in the mikvah. Mm-hmm. What, is, what transformation takes place, I'm not sure, but it makes it acceptable for us to use. And the only other thing is the klipa, is that, is that any relevance to the Yetzirah? Absolutely. Okay. So the word klipa is one of the terms that we use to speak about the spirits, the, the powers of impurity. There's different terms we use. We use klipa, we use sitra achara, and the, the difference of the terms that we use is defining the different relationship that they have. The word klipa means a shell, and it means that it hides the spiritual light. So it's in this world is a world where everything is intermingled. Like, for example, a tree has both the divine light and it has the elements of it that could be drawn down, God forbid, to impurity. So when we look at something, the way we are in this world is we see the shell of it. If you wouldn't know, if you had no experience of, um, let's see, something that's closed, a closed walnut, you might see a closed walnut and think that that's what it is. It's just through and through a hard rock. And then somebody tells you, hey, no, you know what this is? It's a nut. Here, take this nutcracker, smash it, and look inside. There's, there's a nut. You could eat it. It's good. So the klipa hides the divine light. It doesn't allow us to see the divine energy, the goodness that's in things. Certain klipas are rectifiable, and that's really our task in this universe, is to take things that are of a rectifiable klipa and elevate them to holiness. And certain klipa, the way that they rec- we rectify them is by not engaging them at all. Certain things that are totally forbidden for us. Like, for example, pork. That's from the three utterly impure klipot. We can't, the way that we elevate it is by resisting it. We don't engage it. But if you make a bracha on this uh, fruit with intention to serve Hashem, you are now taking this fruit that has the divine life, but is also hidden by the klipa, and you're elevating it to holiness. So klipa like is the relationship between the two sides. Right, so it sounds like klipa is the covering uh-huh. of the but the, but the Yetzirah is actually the essence of that, that negative sound. So, oh, so you're, you asked me what was the relationship of the Yetzirah with the klipa. So the Yetzirah is actually the drive of our animal soul. Okay. And the animal soul derives from klipa. The Jewish animal soul derives from the rectifiable klipa. 
So, so in terms of klipa, the yetsarhara is the drive of the animal soul, which is derived from klipa. So, in shorthand, the yetsarhara is klipa, <laughs> basically. <laughs> it shows itself. Yeah. Uh, and Regina had a question. Yes, we actually touched on both the questions that I have as well. Um, when you mentioned the forefathers, like uh-huh. how their transformation merited us to have the Shabbos week. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, what transformation did they So, so Avraham, she, she asked, she thought that the forefathers were born holy. How is it that they, what did they do in order to merit to trans- transformation? So Avraham, as far as I know, was born with the holy soul, but he was not born with an inherent knowledge of Hashem. It was him who started to look at all the, the powers of the world that the people, the heathens of his time were worshiping, and he tried to discover who is the creator. And once he found out who the creator is, he felt the need to share with everybody else, and he was literally transforming the world. But beyond that, what his transformation was is he took utter control of his physical self so that nothing that he did was not in line with Hashem. Look at us. We all have a holy neshama. Could each of us say that nothing that we do is not in line with Hashem? I hope. Amen. But he, he underwent that transformation to the extent that his body was literally a conduit to express the divine. And all, each of the forefathers were like that. Look, Esav also had a neshama. The twin, the twin brother of Jacob, he had a neshama too. He didn't turn out like Jacob. He wasn't part of the Merkava because he didn't, he, his soul was actually of a greater order than, than Jacob's. But he did not do the work, the inner work that Jacob did to transform his physical body to become a conduit for the divine. So they really worked on themselves. They transformed their physical beings to express the divine. And thank you. Now we benefit from that. <laughs> yeah. So we, we do name our forefathers in the Amidah, but we're not calling upon them. We're calling upon Hashem. We're saying, Eloke Avraham, the God of Abraham, Eloke Yitzchak, the God of Yitzchak, Eloke Yaakov, and the God of Yaakov. We're reminding Hashem of our forefathers. We're calling their merits. We're reminding Hashem of the merits of our forefathers so that he will have mercy on us. Each of our holy forefathers represents a different one of the Sifi wrote. So... Abraham represented kindness, chesed. And, and uh, Isaac represented gevura, strictness. And Yaakov represented tiferet, which is beauty. It's the mixture, compassion. It's compassion. But uh, uh, the Talmud speaks about how Hashem tells Abraham, but they will end the bracha with you. And that's why we end the bracha. We, say, we bless Hashem. We don't say the, father, the God of our forefathers. We say, magen Abraham, the shield of Abraham. And a lot of people, when they, when they say the end of the bracha, when they think the shield of Abraham, they think that Hashem should protect them from, you know, inadvertent sins or 
unfortunate circumstances, God forbid. That's what they think about when they say, Magen Abraham, the shield of Abraham. So when we're calling upon our forefathers in the Amidah, we're actually calling upon Hashem, who is the God of our forefathers. We're bringing their merits to, we're reminding Hashem of their merits, just like, you know, on uh, how we, um, during the holidays, we speak about the Akedah of Yitzch, the, uh, the binding of Isaac. We're reminding Hashem of the great merits of our forefathers so that he, you know, sees us favorably and gives us blessing because of our forefathers, even if, he, you know, we're not so meritorious, but see our forefathers. Do it for the sake of our forefathers. I'll get to you in just a second. Yeah. Did you say that um, Chokhmah is the power of light? I said that within, well, the, the Chokhmah is actually, and we'll get to it next class, is the power of vision. I didn't say that Chokhmah is the power of light. I said that within the power of Chokhmah shines the light of the blessed Ainsof. So Chokhmah is the perfect vessel for which the Ainsof to shine. And we'll have to understand that next class because really there's no. Which vessel can contain Hashem? And because we, we, we said Chokhmah is Kawachmah. Uh huh. Yes, it's exactly in this so chapter is too. That what is that vision? What is, what, we're going to literally talk about this and give it a full treatment next class, but what is like the, the word that you say when you're totally astounded? When you have no way to describe it, you can't make sense of what you see, you say, what? And that's Chachma. And we're going to talk about, Chachma is huge. You know, I know you love Chachma. We're going we're gonna, to, next class, we're going to talk all about Chachma. So then when God said, let there be light, is that light that Chachma? Like he created Chachma in the... No, and I'll tell you why. Because light is a creation. But when we talk about the Chachma of Hashem, it's just an emanation from Hashem. It's... No, when he says, let there be light, anything that Hashem created, it says, Bidvar Hashem Shemayim Nasu. The words were created by the word of Hashem. So, light was created by Hashem saying, let there be light. That is in direct contrast to the Jewish soul. The Jewish soul is not creating that thing. So, you're saying, uh, from which of the Sifi wrote does this light created from, even though it's not the Sifira itself, but which Sifira is created from? And I don't know, possibly. It's Chachman, but I don't know. I would have to find out. Because also, when, when we are thinking, or just an idea mm-hmm. comes, it's like a light bulb. Yeah, you're, you're taking out my whole next class. That's exactly what we're going to talk about next class. Oh, really? Roya. Fire. <laughs> just fire. <laughs> Roya, what are you doing? But there is one more thing that's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Okay, could you send that to me so I have it for next class? Send me, send me what, that thing about electromagnetic energy. Okay? This is already science. She's giving me too much homework. I know, but we're both fascinated by science. We both, we both have the same book on quantum mechanics. Yeah, I have something Yeah, one second, one second. I, just, just, yeah, I'm coming back to you. Do we have what? In here, do we have a mathematician? We don't have a mathematician. Yeah. Each world, there are ten sefirot, but in each ten sefirot, there is the other sefirot, 